The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. It is uh, wonderful to spend this time with you. Hope you had a good Christmas. This morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 9, looking at verses 42 to 50. Uh, so that's Mark 9, 42 to 50. If you're wondering why Mark 9, well, I wanted to emphasize uh, with you the importance of God's word in our lives as we head into this next year. And as I was doing my own reading, this text just stood out to me. And so I wanted to share it with you in, this, in that light. So Mark 9, 42 to 50. Let's hear the word of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone, who, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your ultimate word, who is the Lord Jesus, who came to be among us to save us from our sins, to bring us to yourself. Uh, we thank you for the Bible, Lord, and its power, as it shows us the gospel, as it shows us who you are, as it leads us in godliness. And Lord, we have a challenging passage before us this morning. We pray for humble hearts, for clear minds, for open ears. Lord, I pray that you would help me to teach this passage faithfully and that your word would do your intended work in everyone who hears it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can you believe it? We are finishing 2020. What a year. And who even knows what 2021 will bring? Can you imagine if a year ago today, you remember, remember that? Can you imagine if a year ago today, someone would have told you what this year, what 2020 would bring? It would have been almost unbelievable. And so we see we don't really know what 2021 will bring, do we? There are so many things of which we are not in control. But there is one thing we can be confident will happen. Jesus said it in our passage this morning. We will be salted with fire. You'll be salted with fire. That's a strange phrase. What, what does that mean? Here's what I think part of it is about. If you're a Christian, God will use difficulty to do two things. 
Number one, the difficulty will expose you. Number two, God will use it to refine you. So first, difficulty exposes. It's a context for seeing what's actually in our hearts. It shows us what we're truly like. But it doesn't just expose. God uses it to refine. If you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, as God shows you what's in here, you'll move further into Jesus and you'll be changed. So we're at the end of a year and we find ourselves, don't we, looking backwards and looking forwards. As we look back, there's things to grieve. There's also things to be thankful for. There's definitely some things to learn. So I want to ask you this. What did the context of 2020 teach you about your character? Take a moment and ponder what 2020 showed you about yourself. I'm sure there were some good things to see, but if you're like me, there's probably some negative things to see, some flaws. And there was some fault, some salty fire this year, wasn't there? The pandemic, the political. And I wonder if Jesus sat down with you and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your character this past year. What do you think he would say? Do you want to hear it? How might he expose you? But in doing so, how might he also want to draw you to himself to grow you more and more into his likeness? Well, as we ponder this past year and begin a new year, I want to learn with you from this challenging passage in Mark chapter 9. It is challenging in many ways. First, there are some textual issues. You may have noticed there's no verse 44 and no verse 46. Uh, what later manuscripts would, be, would consider to be those verses were pretty certainly not in the original manuscripts. But that's not really the challenging part of the passage. Those variants don't change the meaning. The difficult part is in what we do know the passage clearly says. As you heard in this passage, Jesus speaks very strongly about hell. In fact, he uses hell as a motivator for his people, a motivator to press in on something that's absolutely essential for anyone who wants to follow him. And so I think, uh, as I was studying this passage, that this passage gives us five fundamental principles for us as we face 2021. Five things to really um, lean into, to understand, and uh, to move forward in. So number one, we're going to see the fundamental perspective. Perspective is about how we see the world, how we see life, and there's a fundamental one here. Number two, there's a fundamental responsibility. And there's a lot of things you and I are not in control of and not really responsible for, but we are responsible for this. Number three, we're going to see the fundamental issue behind the responsibility. There's something there that's driving and defining everything. So, so far, perspective, responsibility, issue. Number four, we're going to see the context for the responsibility, kind of like the field of play where the action happens. We want to understand that. And fifth, we want to see the fundamental power for us in keeping our responsibility, the fundamental power. So perspective, responsibility, 
issue, context, power. First, perspective. Let's start by asking just some basic questions of this text. Who's Jesus talking to? Well, clearly in context, he's talking to his disciples whom he loves as they're on the way to Jerusalem. Number two, what is Jesus talking about in this passage? Well, very clearly, he's talking to his people about their responsibility to fight their own sin. It's mentioned over and over again with graphic, visceral language. Number three, what is the perspective Jesus gives his people to help motivate them in their fight against sin? Let's look again at Mark 9, 47. Mark 9, 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What does that teach you about the perspective Jesus is using? Well, clearly the perspective is eternal. We'll either be entering the kingdom or be thrown into hell. These are massive, eternal things, aren't they? It just reminds us as we begin this year of 2021 and we're pondering what will happen, our hopes, our fears, we actually need to step back sometimes and think about bigger things than just 2021. We need to think about what will happen forever and ever. You know, some have said about Christians, they're all heavenly minded and no earthly good. Jesus seems to actually feel like it's the other way around. The more of an eternal perspective you have, the more you'll be transformed today. The less the issues of eternity on your mind are on your mind, the more you'll be conformed to this world. And so Jesus gives two eternal options, doesn't he? There's either entering the kingdom or there's being thrown into hell. Yes, we know the kingdom of God has come. It has come in Jesus Christ. It has begun. Jesus reigns now over all things, most visibly, Lord willing, in the hearts and lives of his church together. The kingdom has come, but no, it has not come in fullness. No, it's not here yet in maturity. No, one day God's people will enter the kingdom. The new heavens, the new earth, the explicit loving presence and reign of our God will see his face. It will be unspeakably wonderful. Come Lord Jesus. That will last for all eternity. It's wonderful and it's glorious, it's beautiful. That will be. The other option is just as terrible. Some will be thrown into hell for all eternity. You know, have you ever heard this idea? Hey, the God of the Old Testament, he's hardcore, harsh, judgmental. But Jesus in the New Testament, he's kind of a softy, right? Well, let this text correct that for you. There's no one who speaks about hell more than Jesus. Our God is holy and just and merciful and good, always, eternally, start to finish. And consider how Jesus describes hell. It's an unquenchable fire. And here quoting Isaiah, it's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Christians know that hell is where God finally answers 
every challenge to his godness. In that passage in Isaiah 66, God is vindicating himself on his challengers. And Jesus quotes this passage and it shows us, we know that hell will include torment. It's the expression of God's just anger. Hell also has this strange aspect of undoing or being uh, corrupted. It's that idea of the, the worm that's always there, kind of um, the, old, the old word for hell was Gehenna, which was this valley of uh, burning trash, basically. And so you see a worm just eating the corruption and, and this graphic imagery of there, the worm doesn't die. We're, we're coming undone. And I see this as it's a place where there's a lack of God's blessing in God's life. And so without him as the source of life and beauty, it's just, it's coming apart. So there's torment, there's undoing. And of course, we see that hell will never end. It's the eternal justice of God, a good God towards the continually debasing of his eternal glory. And hell, we would have to admit, is the most sober thing there ever could be, isn't it? It's the most sober thing there ever could be. And we see here that Jesus sends people to hell. It's a hard doctrine, hard doctrine. If you have questions and you wanna talk about this or doubts, I'd love to talk with you about that. But here's a few questions that come to my mind I think that our hearts need to answer. Is our sin really so bad that it would deserve something like hell? You know, your heart kind of wants to wriggle out, doesn't it? It wasn't th that bad. It wasn't that evil. Another question, does God really hate our sin that much? What do you think the answer is? Yes, it really is that bad. And yes, God is good to truly hate sin that much. So we learn something here about the nature of sin and Jesus' attitude towards it. Jesus is giving us an eternal perspective as motivation for his people to fight their sin because he hates our sin. We know that sin is a direct challenge to the goodness and godness of a holy God. We remember the Bible teaches we were designed by God to represent his character, by enjoying satisfaction in him and sin defiles that design. Sin denies God's goodness. You don't satisfy, sin says. You're not as good as this other stuff. Sin denies God's truthfulness. It says to God, your promises are a sham. Your warnings are meaningless. Sin denies God's authority. Your justice is worthless. Your reign is unwanted. In fact, we will set our own standards based on what we prefer. Sin replaces God with counterfeits, We'll be God, our hearts say, thank you very much. That is all at the core attitude of sin. So we see that Jesus and, and sin are not friends. Jesus came to undo sin and defeat sin. In heaven, one day there will be a place where there, or it will be the place where there is no sin and God's people will always love him and his ways. One day Jesus will judge unrepentant sinners forever. All this is part of an eternal perspective that Jesus gives in order to help motivate his people's fight against their sin. 
It's an eternal perspective. If you believe this, it must be true that if you have nothing but sorrow here in this life and yet gain the eternal kingdom, you've lost nothing and have gained everything. And if you have all the pleasures here and gain only an eternal hell, you've truly lost everything. That's an eternal perspective. And Jesus gives us a healthy fear, I think, of hell in order to help motivate us to fight our sin. You know, some say fear is uh, not good as a motivator. Consider the ways fear has transformed our life practices this year. Fear of the pandemic, fear of government overreach. And certainly there can be unhealthy fears, right? Manipulative fears, irrational fears. But isn't there such a thing as healthy fear as well? Don't you have a little bit of a fear of what a car accident can do to your body? Don't you want to drive wisely? Maybe wear a seatbelt. My point is this. If there's really such a thing as a personal, holy God who sees you, knows you, and holds you accountable, if there's really such a thing as an eternal hell, would it not be healthy to have a healthy fear of such a thing? In fact, are not all other fears that you ever could have pretty much nothing in comparison to that healthy fear? I mean, shouldn't this be the one of legitimate things to be concerned about, that that this is the heavy one. Jesus is giving us a a fundamental perspective, or, or he's giving us an eternal perspective, and he's showing us that the fundamental perspective is an eternal one, a view of the importance of our eternity and how our character and our deeds are a part of where we spend it. All that is meant to motivate this fundamental responsibility this fundamental responsibility. It's so important for us to get our main responsibilities clear. We get into so many problems when our hearts want to bear the burden of being responsible for things we're not actually responsible for. And we try to control things we can't actually control. Have you ever tried that before? Leads to a bunch of anxiety, bitterness. It's terrible. One way that shows itself, this idea of taking responsibility for things that you're not ultimately responsible for, is how it's so easy for us to be incredulous, outraged, and offended more by other people's sins than by our own. To be sure, other people's sins can be horrible, can be painful. Certainly, sometimes we have an influence uh, in someone else's life. But really, friends, really, truly, are other people's sins to be your main concern. When you stand before Jesus, is he gonna bring up everybody else's sins? No. Consider the the use of the words you and your in these verses from Jesus, Mark 9, 43 to 48. 
If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm getting something here in this repetition. Who does Jesus want you to think primarily about You. He wants you to prioritize yourself and fighting your sin. For sure, Jesus uses metaphorical language here to make a powerful point. Uh, we need to say, of course, Christians are never to physically maim themselves in the fight against sin. Of course, we know that wouldn't actually do any good anyway. No, this, Jesus' audience would have understood that this is a teaching style used to make a point. And his point is, your main and very serious responsibility is to deal with your own sin. Uh, four observations I want you to see from this set of verses. First, the idea of your worst enemy. So I'll just ask you, who do you think your worst enemy is? I know you have a lot of perceived enemies. Think of those things in your mind. Maybe it's a political situation, it's a physical situation, it's certain relationships in your, in your life, people in your life. Who's your worst enemy? Who's the one you're most responsible to face? This text is very clear that maybe the answer is surprising, but your worst enemy, according to Jesus, is who? It's you. It's you. Who's my worst enemy? It's me and my own sin. How easy to forget that <clears throat> when we face other people's sins. Out of all the evil in the world to fight, friends, for the Christian, the fight starts here. The problem in our church community you should most worry about is you. The hands, feet, and eyes I should be most concerned with are mine. It sounds heavy, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's confrontational, but honestly, think this through. Wouldn't this actually make us all incredibly delightful people? How humble and gracious would we be if our first priority in our minds and our hearts was fighting our own sin and taking responsibility for our own selves? Think of how we might rely on one another and listen to one another and lean on one another if our main priority, if my main priority was dealing with my own sin. Instead of being something heavy, I think that would be something very sweet. So we see one observation. The fight against sin here is to be personal responsibility. Second, the fight must be serious. Isn't Jesus saying that sin is not something you want to flirt with? I mean, hand, foot, I, these are just aspects of ourselves that we use to get into situations of sin. We use to commit sin. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to flirt with this. In fact, you want to fight it seriously. Uh, there was a man named Tr Timothy Treadwell who went and lived with grizzly, be grizzly bears for 13 summers in a row in Alaska. And he claimed to have this relationship of mutual trust and understanding with the grizzly bears. And uh, you can imagine how that ended. 
he was actually eaten by a grizzly bear. And uh, Tom Smith is a research, research ecologist with the Alaska Science Center of the U.S. Geological Service, and he said this of Treadwell. He said, Treadwell was breaking every park rule that there was in terms of distance to the bears, harassing wildlife, and interfering with natural processes. Right off the bat, his personal mission was at odds with the park service. And then Smith said, this sentence stood out to me, he had been warned repeatedly. Then referring to Treadwell's death, Smith concluded, it's a tragic thing, but it's not unpredictable. To me, that serves as a, a decent illustration of this passage. You cannot cohabitate with sin. You'll feel liberated, independent, groundbreaking, enlightened. You're breaking park rules, and you've been warned. And if you don't stop, you'll get eaten. Isn't Jesus saying something like this? It's holiness or hell. You don't flirt with sin. You kill sin or sin will be killing you. And so it's this emphasis to take serious action against your sin. If something's standing out to you in your own life, I just want to encourage you. Don't just feel guilty. Get help. Do something. Reach out. Make a plan. Fight your sin with seriousness. The third thing to see in this little section is the fight against sin will be painful. Sometimes fighting sin feels like amputation. Nobody wants to cut off their hand. Again, that, again that's metaphorical, but isn't that kind of how it feels? Our sin so often comes from deep, deep heart issues. We have idolatries in our heart, things we look to to make us who we are, to give us self-respect, security, satisfaction. And so sometimes to stop sinning in those ways will feel like dying. It's like, feeling, it's like we're giving things up we can't bear to give up. But in dying in this way, friends, we live. Did you hear Jesus' words? He's not being cruel in these words. He's being loving. He repeatedly said, it's better for you. It's better for you. It's better for you. And that's the fourth observation here. The fight against sin is worth it. It's always worth it. Jesus says this in love for our good because sin is horribly foolish, but part of the nature of sin is its deception. It looks and feels so good and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal at the time, but that's all a lie. And your sin will never lead you to ultimate happiness. So we see so far the fundamental perspective is eternal. The fundamental priority, responsibility, is to fight our own sin. Now let's see the issue lurking behind this responsibility. You know, one main reason Christians have never, as a whole, taken these words literally, this you know, physical maiming to fight sin. No, we don't do that. One reason we don't do that is because we know it would never work. I could, I, could, I could have no hands, no feet, pop out both my eyes, and believe you me, I could still sin. <laughs> That's not the issue. There's an underlying condition here, and Jesus has told us what it is. Look at Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. Mark 7, 20 to 23. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what? 
Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? From within, and they defile person. Jesus teaches that the heart is the problem. The heart is our core self where we process our world and how to live in the light of what we want, in the light of our desires, what we love. And so we see that we sin because we want to. Our hearts are darkened. How do you get a changed heart? How can a dark heart change itself? Well, it can't. It can't. And so we know that this passage in Mark 9 is not a text telling us to earn our salvation by fighting our sin good enough, honestly, honestly, as if we could. We know that the gospel of Mark does not end in chapter 9. No, Jesus is on the journey to Jerusalem, and he's going to accomplish the very deeds he predicted for himself. This is what he said in Mark 9, 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is on the way to the cross. And perhaps he's thinking about hell in part because he's about to endure it for us. It's God, who, it's God alone who transforms the heart. And he does it as we believe the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, as we saw last week. In fact, he will save his people from their sins. The victory has been won, and he did it through his perfect sinless life. He alone has lived a perfect life of holiness and love for God and love for neighbor. He will give that to you if you put your faith in him. He won the victory over sin through his sufficient substitutionary death. On that cross, Jesus took the eternal wrath of God and hell that I deserve. He could do it as the eternal son of God. He paid the price we deserve to pay. You put your faith in him, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven of all your sins. And Jesus was vindicated as victorious over sin and death in his literal, physical resurrection. Who Jesus is and what he's done, that's the gospel. And as, as, as the Messiah, the one who has accomplished what he said he would do, Jesus stands as the only and perfect Savior who can and will free his people from their sin. And as we trust in him, the heart is changed. God changes our heart to see Jesus and what he's done is beautiful. We trust in him and something fundamental happens and our heart continues to change, to love Jesus the most, to honestly love his ways and when we love him, guess what we'll hate? We'll hate what he hates. We'll hate our sin. Is your heart changed? Have you trusted Jesus? Do you know what he's done to save you? 
Are you leaning on that, on that? And are you growing to love him? If so, you'll be motivated to fight your sin. Now I want to see with you the fundamental context where this fight takes place that stand out in these texts, kind of the, the main arenas for this fight against sin. Look at how this passage starts and how it ends. It starts in verse 42. There Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. <clears throat> we do see here a major context for fighting our sin is our relationships with one another, isn't it? It's our relationships with one another. We know that we influence one another so deeply. We are human beings and that's the way it is. And we all too easily can influence one another towards sin. And just think of a sin that's so easy, gossip. Gossip. Let's spread this negative idea about this other person. And of course, I'm gonna spread it, so I gotta include you in that. And then you're hearing the juicy nugget about uh, the secret evil of this person, and we enjoy our self-righteousness together, totally forgetting the gospel and its demands on our lives, and we're influencing one another to sin. That's just one tiny example. Let's just say that Jesus is not pleased when we influence one another to sin. He says great millstone. This is the kind of millstone that has to be pulled by a donkey. It's heavy. He's like, oh, you want to cause these little ones that I love who believe in me to sin? Let's go for a boat ride. Here, tie this thing on. Go for a swim. What are you supposed to do with this? I'll take it to mean at least he doesn't like it when we influence one another to sin. He really doesn't like it. And to practice it, to not repent of it, is trouble. Look at how the text ends, verse 50. It's this command from Jesus to his disciples. Be at peace with one another. It's a command, be at peace with one another. So again, we see a major context for fighting sin is in our relationships, of course. And sin is often shown in our lack of peace and unity in the local church. Now, this is the context of Mark 9. Look at Mark 9, 33 to 35. Jesus has just told his disciples he's gonna die on the cross and rise from the dead. And then he catches them red-handed in an argument like this. Look at 9, 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> but they kept silent. Can you imagine that? Jesus catching you red-handed. What, what were you talking about? They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Do you see the context for their sin and how they were influencing one another to sin in their pride and in their self-righteousness? How many of our own arguments are like this? They're really about my honor, my value, my rights. And we're influencing one another to sin. No, a context for fighting our sin is in our relationships 
We know this. Look what the Apostle Paul said, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. In light of the gospel, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Relationships, that's the first context for fighting our sin. The second context is suffering. Second context is suffering and difficulty. And that's what I think this phrase in verse 49 means. There Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. I think he's talking about his disciples here, especially. That's the context to me. So let's unpack these two ideas, salt and fire. Uh, Jesus uses the word salt here with broad meaning, just as it would have been used that way in the ancient world. At that time, salt represented purity, preservation, faithfulness. Uh, In the ancient world, salt was valued as a preservative. It was often involved in covenant making. In fact, you read the Mosaic Law, many sacrifices in the Mosaic Law were accompanied with salt. What did that mean? Here's what Old Testament commentator John Hartley said. Salt was to be added to all grain offerings beside adding flavor. Salt acted as a preservative, staying decay. So salt symbolizes the binding power of the covenant, a solidarity that prevents any animosity from breaking the bond of fellowship between the parties of the covenant. So salt represents the purity and faithfulness of God's covenant. And it also means, I think here, that God's people are a sacrifice to him. Devoted to him. What's the fire then? Well, fire, I think, represents the suffering that God uses to refine us. Um, We know that the gospel of Mark was probably originated with the apostle Peter. Mark was his assistant. We also know uh, Peter wrote 1 Peter. So maybe 1 Peter can understand, help us understand this idea of fire. And I think we see something very similar to the idea in Mark 9 and 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by what? Fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we unpack this illustration, God's people are meant to be sacrifices to him. That's our response to his salvation, devoted to him. And we're in covenant with him and he preserves us. He salts us, keeping his covenant with us and enabling us to be refined in keeping it with him. And just as gold is refined by fire, so we are refined by trials. We don't need to like trials. We're free to pray that God will end trials for his glory. Sometimes he does, but we want to go with the grain of why they are there. Jesus says a major responsibility for us is to fight our own sin and difficulties will be part of the context in which that occurs. They are to purify us, to make us more like Jesus as we are forced to lean more and more on him in faith. We're about to hit 2020. Jesus is giving us a fundamental perspective of eternity and a fundamental responsibility to fight our sin. That can happen in our lives because we have a changed heart through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so as we 
enter into this next year, we see these arenas for growing in Christ. It's going to be relationships so often. It's going to be difficulty. Let's lean into what Jesus has for us. Finally, the fundamental power. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. Something he's telling us to do. It's kind of strange. It's the idea of, you know, preserve something in you that will preserve you. Strive to keep this covenant that God is keeping with us. There's something that aids us in fighting sin, something that helps us to be at peace with one another. You know, Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 66 when he talked about hell, so it's a good guess to think that the entire context is on his mind. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 2. Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is what God says through his prophet. God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and what? Trembles at my word. How do we fight sin? How do we fight sin? Look at Psalm 119, verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart. That what? That I might not sin against you. Friends, the fundamental power for doing what Christ is calling us to do is to have a regular and deep interaction with his word. A rich time in God's word gives us an eternal perspective. It reminds us of who God is and what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. A rich time in God's word forms our hearts, points us to the gospel, directs us in how we are to live. So if you're listening to this message and you're saying, yes, I want to go, I want to lean into what Jesus is telling me to do. I want to prioritize my own character for his glory. I want to fight my sin. I'm telling you, you cannot do that in the way he would have for you without a deep reliance on an interaction with his word. Will you make this a main priority as you hit 2021 that you're going to steep regularly in God's word and it's going to be a priority for you? Studies I've encountered recently seem to be saying that Bible reading is decreasing and guess what's going up? Social media usage. And let me tell you, social media usage will impact your character. I just want to ask you, which influence you want to have the greatest impact on who you are and how you live and how you see things. Sometimes people tell me, well, I can't spend time like this in the Bible. I don't have time. I heard one pastor say that the reason there is such a thing as social media is so that it will be evidence on judgment day to show us that we did actually have time to read the Bible. 
Supposedly, Americans are on social media two hours a day, and that does not include the entertainment of television. Say, you, say that's true for you, and you cut that in half. That means you have an hour there, just willy-nilly free to meditate on God's Word. I don't have time. I don't read. Uh, social media says otherwise. Make a plan. Make a serious plan, a Bible reading plan. So you have this daily interaction with the Lord, a prayerful reading, steeping in God's word. And we have one to suggest for you. Uh, This afternoon, you're going to receive some information on what's called a five-day Bible reading plan. Um, You'll read the whole Bible if you follow through with this plan. Uh, I like that it's five days because it leaves room for, hey, we missed a day. Another benefit is it's somewhat chronological. You'll see how the Bible fits together. But here, this is an effort to give you a practical way where you can make a deep interaction with God's word a real and true priority in your life. But whether you follow that plan or not, I want to ask you to do this. Plan your work in detail. When and how are you going to read the Bible? Number two, start working your plan. Put it into action Number three, share your plan with someone else. Will you do that? Plan your work. Share your plan with someone else. Maybe uh, share it with a close friend, another brother or sister at church, maybe, maybe a spouse, maybe a child. Maybe read the Bible, follow the same plan with someone else. Every once in a while, pray over, discuss what you learned. Maybe even invite an unbelieving friend or family member to read the gospel of Mark with you. Let's just invest Investigate Jesus on his own terms, but read the Bible. Get into God's word because that is the fundamental power for being refined, for being more godly. We don't know what's gonna come this year, 2021. We do know what Jesus wants from us. And one thing he wants very much is godliness. Fellowship with him conformity to him. And that means we have a priority to fight our sin. Church, have salt in yourselves with the salt of God's word, the power of what he's done for us in the gospel. We can be at peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and what he's done Lord, I pray for clarity in everyone's hearts on where they're at with you, that they would know that if they're in Christ, there's no condemnation for them, that the the justice of hell has been paid for uh, by their substitute. But even then, Lord, that we would have a healthy fear of, uh, of what's there, and that that in part would motivate us, Lord, to fight our sin, to realize you, you hate sin, And you've called us to grow in godliness. Lord, motivate us to do this and help us, God, uh, with the desire and the self-control to get into your word. May we meet with you there and be changed by you there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.